Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Bridgehead on 5.30 a.m. at 1.30 p.m. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and I'm the Communications Director for the Canadian Centre for Bioethical Reform. Now, many of you have probably heard of the late atheist Christopher Hitchens, a man famous for writing the atheist bestseller, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, as well as his much-renowned uh, autobiography, Hitch 22. Now, many people on this side of the Atlantic don't realize that Christopher Hitchens' younger brother, Peter Hitchens, has acquired similar notoriety across the Atlantic in Great Britain, but for quite the opposite reason. Uh, Peter Hitchens is a traditional Christian and has written even a response to his brother's book called the Rage Against God, How Atheism Led Me to Faith. Now, Peter Hitchens has had an extraordinarily fascinating career. Uh, conforming in some ways to the old maxim, if you're not a socialist at the age of 20, you have no heart. And if you're not a conservative at the age of 40, you have no brain. As a young man, just like Christopher Hitchens, he wrote for a time for a Trotskyite newspaper and was involved in all sorts of Marxist politics. But subsequently, as a journalist, he reported on the collapse of Soviet Union from Moscow, the fall of the apartheid system from South Africa. He extensively documented the U.S. military intervention in Somalia in 1992 and wrote several beautiful undercover pieces from Iran in 2007. I first came into contact with his work actually because I saw uh, YouTube videos of him debating his brother Christopher Hitchens on both the Iraq War, which Christopher was for and Peter was against, as well as the existence of God, which of course Peter Hitchens believes in, but Christopher Hitch does not. Um, since then I've, I've had the opportunity to read, read a number of his books. Uh, Peter Hitchens has written on the decline of British conservatism, uh, called The Broken Compass. He's written on the brokenness of the legal system in his book The Abolition of Liberty. And in my favorite book that he wrote, he wrote on the decline of Great Britain as a Western nation and subsequently sort of as a microcosm the decline of Western civilization in general in the abolition of Britain. He really holds nothing back in his writing style. He writes regularly for the Mail on Sunday. And James Silver of The Guardian described Peter Hitchens' writing as, quote, molten Old Testament fury shot through with fiscal wit, end quote. Well, some time ago, I had the opportunity to interview him for an article that I was writing, and we talked for about 45 minutes, and we sort of ranged from topic to topic and, and discussed a whole number of, of, of moral issues as well as different political issues on, on both sides of the Atlantic. And as I was going through the interview the other day, I realized there's quite a few uh, you know, interesting snippets and, and interesting historical analysis and moral analysis that the listeners on the bridgehead uh, might really enjoy listening to. So without further ado, I'd like to uh, present to you a, a few snippets of, of my interview with Peter Hitchens. Well, it is undoubtedly true that, that uh, the knowledge of what an abortion genuinely involves is, particularly pictorially, is, is one of the very, very few things which, which you could almost almost totally truthfully say was censored, particularly from, from um, mainstream television. People simply don't know. Right. Uh, that sort of uh, plays into one of the questions I was going to ask you because it's a, it's a discussion that's happening on this side of the ocean quite a bit as a lot of books are coming out examining uh, Generation Y and how people receive information. And we're trying to have rational debates about things like uh, same-sex marriage, abortion, to a certain degree promiscuity as people are realizing that the report card has come in um, and that regardless of, uh, of what they think the sexual revolution meant. This isn't working very well. But do you think that in an increasingly anti-intellectual age where people are generally fed on a diet of film and television and don't read very much, that it's possible to have a, a rational, non-emotional debate with a public that's increasingly not aware of what those things mean? It's increasingly difficult because people are taught almost universally what to think. 
And those classes of society who, who were previously taught how to think no longer are. So you actually get people who would um, who, who might be thought to rank as intellectuals or important thinkers who, who, who don't actually think and who are as inaccessible to logic as, uh, as, as any bad mass victim. So it's the, the ability to think is increasingly rare mm -hmm. among, among groups of people where it used to be quite common. It's very difficult to have a serious debate about anything in the modern West. Yeah, there's been a number of secular academics who have produced books that, that characterize uh, Generation Y, the current generation, which would be my generation, as self-involved, narcissistic, unintellectual, and even rather lazy. Do you agree with that sort of broad-sweeping analysis? And if so, do you, what, what do you think the future of, of Western civilization is with that sort of in mind? Well, I don't know. I, I think it would be very difficult for me without, without doing quite a lot of research to, to come to that conclusion about an entire generation. Mm -hmm. Always assuming that one could agree on what a generation was in the first place, which right. is sort of vague. I mean, what good would it do? I know that there are exceptions. I know there are exceptions because they, they get in touch with me. So no, I'd rather not get involved in that sort of game. I'm very pessimistic, um, but, or that's what people call me. I, I just say I'm, I'm realistic. I think that the, the outlook for Christian civilization is currently rather bleak, and I think anybody who th thinks otherwise is deluding himself. So, uh, but on the other hand, say not the struggle, nor to avail it. If hopes were dupes, fears may be liars. You simply don't know what's going to happen next. It's possible that a great revulsion against the secularism and, and the century of the self is coming. I mean, when you see how badly it's affected and young, who are particularly the victims of, of mass divorce and its its twin brother, the, uh, the turn away from marriage, uh, who simply know that they've been deprived of that priceless gift of a stable uh, upbringing with, with two married parents, they might begin to wonder as they ponder on this and what they've lost by it, whether a, a, a turn back to a more morally self-regulated society would be a good thing. So who knows? Our religious revivals have happened. Right. My own country's civilization, and I suppose to a certain extent yours by, by second-hand effect, mm -hmm. it, it rests almost entirely on the great nonconformist revival of the 18th century. Right. Brought about the remoralization of the Victorian era on whose benefits we live. And these things come. People achieve them. I can't I don't see any side of it, but that doesn't mean it isn't going to happen. So I do, you can't give up. We're not allowed to despair. Correct, correct. But, there's so, plenty of this, but the realist has to say things aren't looking good at the moment. So you do say that barring another Whitfield and another Wesley and, and you know, moralist politicians like a Wilberforce, it does look bleak, like you think... It does, but they, who knows, but they may, they may even now be among us. Right. And we haven't noticed. Right, from a... From a you, things... Always, always the true historian living in, in, in actual time is always trying to penetrate the disguises in which history advances itself. Things don't look at the time you experience the way they'll look in the history book. We may be missing something important, I don't know. Right, like... We are, but we may be. I don't... You can't rule it out. Because, because from a political perspective... Which we, which we have heard nothing.
Exactly. I, I, I couldn't agree more, actually. And, and from a political perspective, in your country and in mine right now, we both have so-called conservative governments who stand for virtually nothing conservative, certainly nothing conservative in the area of social issues. Um, it's do you think that... Per- curious, isn't it, what's happened to, the, to political conservatism? But I, it's largely because it, of what was actually a great virtue of it, which is this fact that it had always been a disposition and not a dogma. That works as long as your opponents are not dogmatic. But once they are, at the very least, you have to have a counter-dogma based on an understanding of your opponents. And I think conservatism stopped understanding what its opponents were about totally during the Thatcher and Reagan era, when conservatism itself got mixed up with, actually, with uh, classical liberalism and became merely a set of tax cuts at home and aggressive noises abroad. Right. And lost any domestic contact at all or any contact whatsoever with social, cultural conservatism, and at the same time was electorally successful. That was actually a catastrophe for political conservatism. It, 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 it then found itself confronted at the end of that period, the Thatcher-Reagan period, when they, when they had both gone, with a revived post-Cold War left, which had thrown off all the old things of state control and, uh, and being on the wrong side of the Cold War and capturing the post office and all the rest of it, and, and had become a very, very sophisticated Gramscian cultural revolution, which most of the conservative politicians of our time don't have a clue about, because they, unlike me, have never been Marxists, and they don't know how Marxists think and what categories they think in, and they, they can't counter it. They have no idea what it is, they have no idea what it wants, they don't understand its methods, they don't understand what it thinks is, is important, they, they've completely surrendered to egalitarianism as a, as a belief themselves. They believe in egalitarianism, which is usually also conservatism. And they've also, by and large, surrendered to secularism and to uh, multiculturalism and to internationalism because they were much too busy cutting taxes and, uh, and being belligerent abroad to concern themselves with these things. So you think that that the, the term conservative is almost meaningless because there's very little left to conservative? The term's not meaningless, but it's it's misapplied to the political parties which which claim to represent it. And the, the difficulty is because voting in universal suffrage tends to be tribal rather than rational. People continue to vote for the party which calls itself conservative long after it ceased to be so, and, and as a result, they do themselves great damage because they perpetuate uh, a party which is, in, in effect, their enemy. Canada had a, a sort of revulsion against that when the, when, when the Conservative Party more or less collapsed, but somehow it seems to have pulled itself together again. A similar thing again, that's partly because the, um, the substitute party didn't really have any, uh, any ideological coherence of its own. The revolt against rather than an urge for, I think. You've noted in one of your columns recently, uh, I've read a lot of what you've written concerning social issues, and you've written about abortion by saying that, quote, those who wonder what they would have done had they lived at a time of some terrible injustice now know the answer. We do live in such a time, and we do nothing. So I'm 24 years old, and I'm part of a, a sort of growing movement here in Canada that's lobbying for abortion laws. What would your advice be to people of our generation who do want to do something? Well, I think... It's extraordinarily difficult because the other side have posed the question as a matter of choice. Um, Our side, as it were, have never really regained the 
it's not an equal argument once that happens. Right. I wrote a bumper sticker in the U.S. I saw against abortion, don't have one. Uh, and I always thought it was, what ought to, someone ought to do is produce a bumper sticker saying against murder, don't commit one, uh, which is the same logic. Right. But the thing is that people don't realize it's the same logic because the, the recognition of the humanity of the baby is what's being withdrawn. And that that's been the great success of the of the of the pro-abortion lobby to, to to suggest that there's only one human being involved in abortion when in fact there are two. But in terms of countering that in, in, in propaganda or anything else, I have no idea how you get it back. I do. The other thing is, I think that these these issues of which which the what do you might call the moral right get very concerned about the issues of abortion and the issue of same-sex marriage and all the rest of it. These are actually uh, Stalingrads. That is to say, they're battlegrounds where you know, one pours in a huge number of resources because it's highly symbolic and important. But it's where you will always lose because you're, um, because you're fighting in a, in a war in which the other side has pretty much dominated the the thinking of a generation right. and doesn't understand the terms in which you argue. Whereas, oddly enough, and this always strikes me, the central, the absolutely central issue of our time is the issue of lifelong faithful marriage. And this is the one which, you know, the, the, the destruction of lifelong faithful marriage, and it's an extraordinary thing, and it once explained to me, I, 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 I think it was an article long ago in the American Conservative magazine, and I, I, I've never got over this because it was so startling when it was put this way. In all the Western Christian countries, in the late or middle 1960s, laws came into force which meant that if two parties had voluntarily agreed to swear a marriage oath and attain God in marriage, if one of those parties decided to dissolve the marriage and the other one decided that he or she wanted to maintain the oath which they'd sworn, the state had the power, ultimately backed by police force and prison, to drag out of the family home the person who wished to abide by the oath and support the person who wished to break it. It's an enormous eruption, I-double-R-U-P-T-I-O-N, an enormous eruption of state power in private life. Right. It's absolutely devastating, revolutionary beyond all measure completely changing the relationship between between uh, individual and, and state and also invalidating uh, individual private promises and a colossal blow at Christianity which relies enormously on the inviolability of, of, of lifelong marriage as the basis of its teaching and also as the basis of private life in which its teaching can be passed on from one generation to another. Right. Now, the extraordinary thing is, and in my book, The Abolition of Britain, I go into this some length, and I wouldn't take back a word of what I then wrote. The extraordinary thing is that the, 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 suddenly the Christian Church in Britain made such a puny effort to stand up for it. And since then, neither Christianity as a force nor political conservatism have made the slightest effort uh, to pull back from this amazingly radical legislation. Right. Nothing. There's never been any attempt... No one even, in, I don't know what the law is in Canada, but in, in my country, for instance, there isn't even any distinction 
in the granting of a divorce by the courts between a, a couple who have children and a couple who have none. Wow. Which you would have thought was the most basic distinction you should, you should make. The, the, the courts should say, well, hang on, if there are children here, surely we, we, we need to put in an extra step in the divorce so that it's made harder. Right. Because the children will suffer. Right. And say statistically that it is, it is almost certain that the children will suffer from this divorce. And sort of one final question along those lines is that I don't know if, if you sort of follow some of the uh, of, of the secular academics, but Richard Dawkins said last week that a a human fetus was no more valuable than a pig. Um, and even no, even, what's no more valuable than a pig? That a human fetus was no more valuable than, than, than a pig. I haven't seen that. Where did you say that? I uh, he he sent it out on his Twitter account and, and, and ended up engaging in a large debate about it. That was This was early last week, and then it ended up making the newspapers because of... of well, what he said is, is a belief held by many, but the inflammatory way in which he worded it, of course... But he... he Dawkins... Well, yeah. And, and, and no, like, even your late brother Christopher, as, as atheist he was, was still cognitively pro-life, but the, the ma main majority of, of the atheist movement seems to be very, very pro-choice. Uh, do you think there's sort of an inextricable link between atheism and eugenics that, that's impossible to circumvent? It's not inextricable. I, some people are, 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 are atheists out of what they regard as a principle, and they, they, they simply feel that they can't... They, they, they don't want to be for whatever. I believe, myself, that all religious beliefs have their origins in desire. Uh, and I think that... But I also think most people don't acknowledge that their beliefs are based in, 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 in their own desires. They prefer to believe that they come to them through some sort of rational process. Um, I think that the fundamental thing behind most modern atheism is this belief that, that people wish to be and are sovereign over their own bodies. Right. Uh, which is, the, in my view, the moral basis of, um, of this century of the self type of supposed libertarianism, which is a very common... Uh, a, a, a very common belief in, in modern society, and I, I think that but most atheists would never acknowledge that they have any reasons for their belief, and they get very angry if you suggest that they do. But I think that, that, that there is there is some, some connection. But if you, after all, uh, abortion is is, is 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 particularly telling in this matter. If there is no no God, then. An abortion has no consequences, provided it's competently performed, and, no, and, and, and the, the adult persons involved who are deemed to be important are unharmed and come out of it healthily and without pain. Right. Uh, the the so-called fetus, the baby, is dismissed as, a, as, a, as an inanimate blob of no value. If, on the other hand, the universe is, so, is as ordered as you and I believe it to be, then a crime has been committed. And if there is justice in the universe, then then those who committed that crime must fear justice. So you would, wouldn't you, desire very strongly that there would be a universe without justice, uh, without God, without eternity, uh, so that your action would not have any such consequences. I, I think that there's an awful lot of that behind the, the current fashion for atheism. And also, I think abortion is... Is, is much beloved by revolutionaries because revolutionaries always like to get the mob to dip their hand in blood and to commit some sort of crime of their own. The French revolutionaries, when they, I think, when they stormed the Tuileries, mm -hmm. uh, the, the Swiss guards were, were, were all butchered, and, and they, once they'd got the mob that deep in, they knew that, that, uh, that they would have them always behind them because they had they'd taken part in the crime. Right. Or 
assumption is important because it, it, once you've done it, it's an irrevocable act of, of bloodstained violence, which ever afterwards places you over on that side, unless you're prepared to accept divine grace. Right. And, and ask for forgiveness for it. Which, right. Um, is a concept beyond most people these days anyway. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, was the British columnist, author, and commentator, Peter Hitchens. I hope you all enjoyed this week's show, and we hope you'll tune in again uh, next week on Thursday at 1.30 p.m. on 5.30 a.m. Have a great weekend.